Christianity in the world remains the fastest growing of all faith. Fastest growing. Western Christianity is not. Western Christian evangelism is sleepy. The chapter we're looking at this morning is Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you two. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Check that verse. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. While America has gained an 18% increase in population growth over the last 18 years or so, that some 50 million more adults now reside in America than did in 1990, while we've seen that increase, Christianity in America has declined 11%. That would be the equivalent of about 33 million adults. 33 million less than there were in 1990. According to the American Religious Identification Survey, which we talked quite a bit about on Wednesday, I won't spend a lot of time on it this morning, but it says people who claim no faith whatsoever increased from 8% in America to 15% in just 18 years. Which is the opposite direction of the desire of our Father, and I know of this fellowship. In raw numbers, that equals about 20 million in 1990 who had no faith, up to 45 million today. That number now outranks every other major United States religious group with the exception of Catholics and Baptists who are also losing ground in significant numbers. Revelation chapter 3 tells us that Jesus is writing... Letters, letters to seven churches in those two chapters. And chapter 3 begins off with a letter to a church in the town or the city called Sardis. Sardis, it means remnant. And he writes, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, and that you are alive, but you are dead. The word name there is onoma. It's where we get our word denomination. You have a name. You have an onoma. You are denominated, clearly, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Summarized in four words, you snooze, you lose. You snooze, you lose. I remember the 1982 Keith Green song. I've shared it with you before. song called Asleep in the Light. Disturbed and bothered a lot of Christians at the time. He's saying the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the the grave and you can't even get out of bed. Western Christian evangelism is sleepy. Now in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 31, the first 31 verses, we see Jesus, we hear Jesus informing His closest friends about the last days. 
It's that great Olivet Discourse. Well, we are still in that discourse now. Matthew 24 and 25 is the whole conversation Jesus has with Peter, James, John, and Andrew there on Mount Olivet. And in those first 31 verses, as we've talked about, he describes a concise chronology of the last days. You can track it through. You can track it through literally, chronologically, from the fall of Jerusalem back in AD 70 to the, all the way up to the current contractions or birth pains, which we talked about are different now than they were before because they're more frequent and they're more intense, just like a woman in labor. That's how you know the end is near, Jesus says, with the birth pains. We tracked on next to that to the tribulation and the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. And finally then Jesus concludes all that with His glorious appearing when He comes to gather His people and set up His kingdom. And the first 31 verses are a very clear chronology of all those things. But beginning in verse 32, through the end of that chapter, Jesus shifts and begins to teach in parables. He's given the literal picture, now He's going to begin to speak in parables. And those parables are for a reason. He has one major theme that track this will follow all the way through Matthew 25. One theme now. A clarion call to readiness. A clarion call to readiness. First a concise chronology, now a clarion call to readiness. Jesus is sounding the alarm of anticipation. Verse 42 in chapter 24. Be on the alert. Verse 44 of chapter 24. You must be ready. Verse 13 of chapter 25. Be on the alert. Three times Jesus says it. Be ready. Be on the alert. Be ready. Be ready. Now remembering the Jewish atmosphere. The application in the parable before us this morning strikes very close to home. And Jesus' words are relevant to everyone who will listen. So we come this morning to the parable of the ten virgins, or you might call them the ten bridesmaids. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. Now we've talked before about the Jewish wedding. I hope by now you're becoming somewhat familiar with this this wonderful, picturesque thing that, that the Lord uses in the Bible. The concept of the Jewish wedding, of the bride and the groom. It was customary for the bride and the groom to be betrothed for up to one year. They were legally married, once betrothed, legally married, but the marriage was yet to be consummated. During that time, the groom would be building a new room onto his father's house, building on a place to which he could bring his bride when the day was right. And father would watch the building and keep track of it, and when he felt like everything was ready, he would say, okay, son, go get your girl. Go get your bride. The wedding's prepared. The groom would then go call on his bride. Sometimes she'd be living in a different region or township altogether, and so he would have to travel to get to her. And as he got close to the town, he'd be calling out, It's time for the wedding! It's time for the wedding! Now the bride, if she was sharp, would be ready to go. Would have everything packed up, the suitcase ready, set to leave. So that when the groom came calling, she could head right out the door with the bridesmaids and the wedding party, and a great celebration would go right down the middle of the, of the town the people marching and parading together. And then the groom would come for his bride. They'd have the wedding. He would take her to his father's house, to that place prepared, and they would go in and literally lock in for seven days. Food would be brought to them. They'd be taken care of. The groom and the bride locked away in the bridal suite for a seven-day honeymoon. That I'm sure is sweet. And after that, the groom would come up after the seven days and he would present his bride to everyone. Now, now the marriage consummated, the marriage complete, the couple unified before the Lord. And the parable in Scripture is just beautiful. John 14.1, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We talked about Wednesday, the word receive you to myself is the word paralambano in the Greek. Paralambano is the same word Jesus used when he said one will be taken and one will be left. One will be received and one will be left behind. And I believe there in Matthew 24, he is indeed talking about the rapture of the church. And we discussed that also on Wednesday. What's amazing to me about John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus says, if I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, is when you begin to study Revelation, you've got a problem. It doesn't seem to jive with what 
Jesus says is going to happen in the second coming. Revelation 19 indicates Jesus returns, riding on a white horse, followed with the host, riding on white horses behind him. Everybody comes back in, and he sets up and establishes his rule and reign. Revelation 20, for a thousand years, on earth, not in a place prepared in heaven, but on earth. And after that, Revelation 21 and 22 tells us very clearly that God then will create brand new, from nothing, brand new, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. It'll be an ultimate new picture. It won't be the old earth refurbished. It'll be a brand new thing that God's going to do. And you read through that and you say, well, okay, so where does John 14 fit into that? He's preparing a place for us. He's preparing a place to bring His bride for those seven days, the seven years of the tribulation. A place prepared for you. He's working on it right now. And we begin to understand when we look at things culturally and see what happened with the Jewish people, how the Jewish wedding took place, that it is a perfect picture. I'm preparing a room for you in my Father's house. I'm going to come get you and I'm going to receive you. Paralam Bono, I'm going to receive you to where I am. That where I am, there you may also be. So Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself, do you know the word there? She has made herself ready. Ready. The bride is ready when the groom comes. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You ever think about the place prepared? I mean, you ever just stop and think about what must heaven be like? We were driving down to the hearing examiner on Friday. And Russ noticed, if you looked out on the horizon, you remember Friday was absolutely beautiful, clear blue sky, and you could see all the way out to the Olympics. And it was breathtaking. And I just thought in that moment, Lord, you are such a grand creator. No doubt you all have traveled in different places in the world and seen tremendous things. Great sprawling oceans and amazing lakes and huge mountaintops and trees that don't seem to ever end as they grow. And we say, wow, Lord, You are an amazing Creator. You are just awesome. Fantastic. Keith Green wrote the song, I Can't Wait to Get to Heaven, where he'll wipe away all our tears. In six days, he created everything, but he's been working on heaven 2,000 years. What an amazing place it must be. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would, not have been cru- they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, an ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Can't even imagine. Paul, in a moment in his life, was, I believe, caught up to heaven and saw those things. Now he indicates that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. What's the third heaven? Well, in Jewish understanding, first heaven is the skies which you can see and the second heaven is outer space and the stars and the third heaven is where God resides. Paul says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. And I know, I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. What are you saying, Paul? I saw stuff I can't even describe to you. I saw things, you can't even imagine. Why does the book of Revelation not go into the wedding feast more than it does? Why in chapter 19 don't we get this big, beautiful picture of the place prepared for us? Because you can't even imagine it. Because words cannot describe what Jesus has prepared for those who love Him. From this point all, by the way, in Paul's writings, from this point on, it was all about heaven. If you notice, after 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and the letters that Paul wrote following that, it's heaven, heaven, heaven. He just could not get it out of his mind. And I believe that's how the Lord wants us to live. I am in full agreement with Jackie, my sister. This is how we are called to live. 
thinking about it. We cannot get our minds so so heavenly focused. Some have said that you're no earthly good. Wrong. The more heavenly heavenly focused you are, the more earthly good you are. I, I sat there, Jackie, while you were sharing, and I was thinking about my life. You know, selfishly, just thinking about what all is going on. And I, and I actually said, Lord, how do we do that? How, we, how do we stay focused on heaven and deal with all the stuff we have to deal with? How do we do that? You know, how, how do I function as a father but stay focused on how do, how do I love my wife and serve her and, and take care of the needs with, and focus on how do I, you know, kids coming in and, and family growing and households, you know, I did taxes all day yesterday. How do I focus on heaven while at the same time doing TurboTax? And I think the reality is we have to focus on heaven. That the more we focus on heaven, the more all those other things begin to have meaning and matter. I don't care for my children because they're my children and, you know, offspring. And so I've got to take care of the offspring. I care for them and love them because I want them to go home with me when I go. And I love my wife because I want her to be there with me when I go. I'm not sure how taxes fit into that. I'll I'll figure it out and get back to you. (laughs) But it's being heavenly focused. By the way, in Jesus' marriage marriage example, after the seven-day honeymoon, when the groom came out and presented his bride, the idea was from that point on, she would be with him always. She'd always be with her husband and he with his bride. Check this out. In the rapture of the church, Jesus comes for His bride. He comes to get her. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together. Caught up. Raptured. Harpazo, that's the word. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always, always be with the Lord. Jesus said that where I am, there you will also be. That we will always be with Him. But watch this. That's in the rapture of the church. We're caught up to always be with Him. What happens when He comes back? In the second coming, Jesus doesn't come for His bride. Jesus comes with His bride. We come back with Him. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. The Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. Who are the holy ones? Well, it's, it's not the word in the Hebrew for angels. It's the word in the Hebrew for saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints, is the word. And the word saints is hagios in the Greek. And again, it's not angelos, it's not angels, it's saints. Holy One. Jesus comes back with His saints. Jude 14, speaking of the very first prophecy we have on record, in the seventh generation from Adam, Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. And again, it's the word saints. Revelation 19.14 tells us, The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Which is curious to me, because... The armies now following Jesus on horseback at His second coming are wearing the exact same clothing in verse 14 of Revelation 19 that the bride is wearing in verse 7 of Revelation 19. What are you saying, Rick? That we ride with Him. That we trace His trails through the heavens. That as Jesus breaks forth in glorious array on that white stallion, we're back behind Him. You will see the second coming of Jesus from the back. <laughs> While the world sees him coming amazed, you'll be going, Go, Jesus, go! Go, Jesus, go! Well, maybe not. I don't, you know. We'll be saying something. I'm sure shouting and cheering and praising, but we come back with him. Revelation 1, verse 6. Revelation 5, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 6. Tell us we then rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Why? Why does the church, the bride of Christ, have that special privilege to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years? What, what could we possibly have done? I mean, you, you all understand, we're saved by grace, right? That without grace, we're ugly, stinking sinners. We're not so great on our own. 
We get off on our own and that's when things go... But when we're in Jesus, by His grace, we are the beautiful bride. So I think we're saved by grace, so, so how possibly do we have the privilege of ruling and reigning with Jesus? What have we done? There's one thing you have done. If you're in Christ today, there's one thing you have done to merit the honor of ruling and reigning with Jesus. You believed Him without seeing. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. We were not like Israel where we saw the magnificent works of God where everything was visibly testified to where they could see God at work and still turned away. No, we believe without seeing. I remember several years ago a friend of mine was real excited that they thought they'd found Noah's Ark and, and it's entirely likely they have or at least pieces of it or pictures indicating they're on a Mount Ararat that it may very well be Noah's Ark discovered. And he was so excited about that. And I remember going away from that conversation saying, you know what, that wouldn't change my faith one iota. Great, they found the ark. I knew it was there. Ooh, big surprise. (laughs) We already knew. Belief without seeing. And it's a precious thing to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's even more amazing to me is that the Lord then does confirm your faith. He then does come. You believe first, he says. I want you to step out. And then I'll show you. And then I want you to step out again. And then I'll show you. And what's going on with the county right now is exactly that. I will go before you. You have a continuance till April 2nd. You have a continuance to meet with the county and work out safety issues and take care of that. Praise the Lord. I'm going before you. But you don't yet have a building up. You don't yet have the site plan all finished and everything done there. Keep walking. Keep walking. I will confirm it to you. Rick, are we ever going to get back to the parable of the ten virgins? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, how about now? The virgins are literally bridesmaids. And in this parable, they're waiting, convinced that the groom was sure to come. They knew the groom was going to come. But, but note this. In the story Jesus tells, the bridesmaids were already sent out to meet the bridegrooms, knowing he was coming. The fact that they were sent out means that they already had a sense that he was on the way. But the way took a while. Who would send out the bridesmaids? The bride. The bride would tell the bridesmaids, time to head out. Keep that in mind. In verse 5, we see something. The groom was a long time coming. While the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. We see a picture of that in Gethsemane on the night before Jesus' death. The apostles were there and they were worn out. Jesus had been teaching for a while. They shared Passover. They were worried. They were upset. They knew that He was upset. Things, Something was going to happen. And they were concerned greatly about it. And so, they got sleepy. They nestled down under the olive trees there and passed out. Jesus said, could you not wait with me one hour? Couldn't you just pray for an hour? Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we see this in these bridesmaids. The good news is God understands impatience. If you've ever been impatient in your life for the Lord to do something, just know that He understands. He gets it. He sees. He knows we're waiting. He knows we get drowsy from time to time. He knows the bride is waiting. And He's waiting too. He's waiting too. Verse 6 says, But at midnight there was a shout. Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And very similar, by the way, to the shout in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord will come with a shout. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The doors were open in heaven and, and a voice shouted, Come up here! So Jesus, I believe, is tying into that right here. Then all those virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. So go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Five bridesmaids were ready to go. They had extra oil in their lamps to keep their lamps burning bright. Five bridesmaids were foolish and they had to go off to purchase oil for their lamps. Verse 10, While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Once again in Matthew 25, we find ourselves in the midst of controversial teaching on the part of Jesus. 
Not in that day, by the way. I think the apostles got this. I think they would have understood this. Because I believe what Jesus is saying here is absolutely clear. But usually when this passage is taught, it's understood as a warning to the church. We read this and we say, oh, we we don't want to be the foolish bridesmaids. We want to be the, 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 the smart, the prudent bridesmaids so that we're ready when Jesus comes. And it's used as a parable for the church often in teachings on Sunday mornings because oil in the lamp in the Bible is a type of the Holy Spirit. They had to have oil, and those who had oil were ready, and those who did not have oil or were running out of oil were not ready. And we could say, well, they, they were the ones, those who quenched the Spirit, as opposed to these who have the Spirit and are ready. The lamp, the lamp is the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And that's good, sound theology. So many people will see this parable and they make that assumption that this parable is about the church. It's about spirit-filled people with spirit-filled lives, hearts trimmed and well-lit, ready to go. And you might say, well, Rick, don't you agree with that? That we are to be spirit-filled? Yes. That we are to be trimmed and ready to go? That we are to hold out the lamp of the Word of Life? Absolutely. But gang, listen. We are not bridesmaids. We are the bride. And you've got to make that clear distinction. We're not the bridesmaids. If Jesus wants to talk about the church, He will talk about the bride. He's already done it. But in this parable, He's not talking about the bride. She's ready. She's good to go. He's talking about the bridesmaids themselves. Or, or do you not think Jesus is capable of staying on theme in His teaching? You think maybe occasionally He mixes His metaphors and confuses things. Oh, wait, did I say bride before? No, wait, that's not what I meant. Let me, let me go back and start the parable over. You never see Jesus going back like that. He knows exactly what He's talking about. So what is the meaning of this parable in Matthew 25? There's another group. Known and beloved by the bride, a group cared for and invited to be part of the marriage celebration of the Lamb with the bride, the bridesmaids. This is a group that had a lamp. They had oil. Some of them got a little sleepy in their long wait, to be sure. But when the call came, some were ready and some were not. Who are these people? Turn in your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. John is writing and he said, I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Uh Uh-oh. 144,000. Well, Rick, that can mean anything. Actually, it can only mean one thing. It has come to mean anything to a number of different denominations and cults. And Jehovah's Witnesses say the 144,000 are Jehovah's Witnesses. The challenge there is at this point there already would be 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses saved, so the rest of them, I don't know what they're doing. I figure once you hit 144, you're done. You know? And there are different groups that claim, oh, that's us, that's, it's talking about us. The Bible is very specific exactly who the 144,000 are. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Not the church. And just to be clear, John writes, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 11,900. No, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. The tribe of Issachar, 12,000. The tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. 144,000. This group of people that you may have heard about before are absolutely, undeniably, and without question, 144,000 Jewish believers. These are people, based on the chronology of Revelation, people who are sealed in the tribulation for a great task. I shared before, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams running all over the earth, bringing the word. Do you know there are not 144,000 missionaries in the world today? This is a big number. 
This is during the tribulation, and, and you've heard me recently say, I believe God is pulling out all the stops in the tribulation. That evangelism continues full force after the church is pulled out. And this 144,000 is just part of the package deal. Along with the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Along with an angel flying in the mid-heavens, if that's not enough, you know, shouting the eternal gospel to people. God is going to pull out all the stops in that time. Great, Rick, wonderful. What does that have to do with the bridesmaids? Turn over to Revelation 14. Revelation 14 and verse 1. And watch this. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with Him, 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Two different groups have different songs. I think that is so cool. These are the ones, watch this, these are the ones, don't miss this. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women for they have kept themselves chaste. 144,000 virgins. They've kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. These Jewish saints, this 144,000 that was literally detailed for us in Revelation chapter 7, now we see again in Revelation 14, are 144,000 virgins. Same word used in Matthew 25 for the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids. We've already seen in Matthew, Jesus came to the Jew first. We know that. He came to the Jew first. There was a first commission, Matthew chapter 10. And even before that, Israel was the one given the task to be the light of the world. Israel was given the task to bring the light to the Gentiles. It was not the church's task originally to be a city set on a hill. When Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 5, you're a city on a hill. I think there's indication there that he's talking about Israel. You don't cover up this light. You're the light of the world. What would make you say that, Rick? Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Did that fail? Was Israel not the light of the nations that would reach to the end of the earth? It didn't fail. It is yet to be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. When the Lord says to Israel, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, a light that will reach to the very ends of the earth, He's talking to Jews. He's talking to Israel. And we see it begin to take place now in that time of tribulation, the 144,000 virgins, chaste people who are bringing the light to the world. There have always been Jews whose lamps were lit, full of oil, ready to go when the groom came. Jews like like Daniel. Hebrews like Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah. John the Baptist. Wasn't John the Baptist a Christian? No. John the Baptist was the last great Jewish prophet before Jesus came. But these guys are not the bride. They're not the bride. Their lamps burned brightly in fact, so brightly, Peter says, we still see the light from these guys' lamps. 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Prophecy is a lamp shining in a dark place. These guys brought the light of the gospel truth to the whole world. The prophets burn so bright, we still see the gospel in their inspired words. And some were looking for Messiah's coming. And they will be honored guests at the marriage feast of the Lamb. The last of these, as I told you, was John the Baptist himself. You know what John called himself? This is interesting to me. John chapter 3, verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John the Baptist says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bride. John would die before the bride 
came into existence. Acts chapter 2, where the church was born. John died before that. He is not part of the bride. He is the friend of the bridegroom and therefore welcome to and privy to the marriage feast of the Lamb. One of the honored guests who will be there. What are you saying? That the bridesmaids here portray all Israel? No. The bridesmaids portray not the faithful of Israel past. They will be honored. They will be invited guests. I'm talking about Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, men and women who serve with great honor and distinction but have long since passed away. They will be honored guests at at the marriage feast of the Lamb. But the bridesmaids in Jesus' story, Matthew 25, I believe is specifically a word to Jews in the time of the tribulation. Specifically to those who come to faith in Jesus at that time. Today, Israel slumbers. Israel is, by and large, a very secular nation. It's drowsy. Occasionally, some will mention Messiah. Some of the more orthodox Jews are looking. Some thought Messiah came and passed away and they kept waiting for Him to raise from the dead and He never did in recent years. They're still looking, but they're slumbering. And the call will go out. Some will have extra oil. You're going to meet a man with extra oil in his lamp who's ready on March 25th from Jews for Jesus who comes and and takes us through the Passover Seder. There are people of Jewish descent, Hebrews, who are ready to go. Wise, wise virgins, ready at a moment's notice. There are those who will be ready during the tribulation. It will start to make sense. And they will have oil in their lamps. And their lamps will be lit and they will be saved. But some, during that tribulation, will have no oil and will not be saved. They will hear the call. And they will go off looking for oil. And on them the end will come suddenly like a flood. Zechariah 13, verse 8. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. They will call on My name and I will answer them. I will say, this is My people, and each one will say, the Lord is My God. Look at verse 11 back in Matthew 25. Verse 11 tells us the other virgins later also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But He answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. That's reminiscent of another teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father in heaven. Many will say to Me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, and done many wonders in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. I never knew You. Lord, Lord, open up for us. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Jesus places, listen to me fellowship, Jesus places a huge premium on relationships. Is it possible for someone to pray the prayer and not be saved? Absolutely. Because it's not a prayer that saves you. When it comes to salvation, you don't have a prayer. You have a relationship. And those who will be saved are those who know the Lord. And those who the Lord knows. He is not asking for people to come forward on a Sunday morning, bow their heads and say, I'm a sinner, and I believe that you died for me, and I believe that you resurrected. Come be my Lord now from this day forward. And that be the last time they ever talk to Jesus. Guess what? That person will say, Lord, Lord! And he'll say, Who are you? What did you say your name was? We have no relationship. That is the call on our lives to be walking with Jesus. To have a relationship with Him. And as you share Jesus with friends, family members, it's not about trying to get them to the point of saying a prayer and once they do, going, oh, good, okay, check that off the list. Who's next? I've shared this before. You stick with them. You walk with them. In that relationship, revealing to them and showing them that it is a relationship that Jesus has called us to. Now you might say, well, I'm somewhat relieved that this teaching applies to Israel. (laughs) Not me. 
I remember as a kid sitting in church and daydreaming as the preacher droned on and on. And I remember this teaching. And he applied it to the church. I remember sitting there. And suddenly I kind of woke up and got a little scared. Imagining myself on a bench with a bunch of my friends and falling asleep and then waking up in time to see that they're all going off but I don't have lamp and, and, I, and I'm left out. It scared me. It really scared me. I mean, you know, as kids, we can be so vivid in our, in our imagination. Listen, I fully believe the church will be taken up. And I fully believe we'll be received by the groom, by the grace of God. I believe the weakest to the strongest of believers are going to go. The most committed among you to those who are just barely hanging on, I believe, are going to go. But somewhere there's a line drawn that only the Father knows, and it's the line of relationship that we either know Him or we don't. And if we know Him, we're going to go. And if we really don't know Him, we will be left. But this teaching is talking about Israel. Well, if this is talking about Israel, why talk about it at all? Let's just let them worry about it. They can read it during the tribulation. (laughs) Gang, we know what happened to Israel historically and prophetically applies practically to us today. We can't be those who just point the finger at Israel and say their problem, their issue, their end. Because it applies to us as well, as Jesus says in verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Does anybody here know the day or the hour? We don't know. So we have one alternative. Be on the alert. Be ready. If you're in Christ, you're part of the bride. But even though you're guaranteed a place at the marriage feast of the Lamb, let me ask you this. Who wants to be a sleepy bride? Can you imagine a bride walking down the aisle? All that gunk in her eyes. Breath that would kill a dog. Hair all bedheaded and matted out. I'm ready. I'm ready for the feast. Let's go. We're not called to be drowsy. What bride ever is? Now, I do remember a story. <laughs> I remember a story I read once about a bride who was very nervous and so she was in the, in the hall there waiting and, and all the food was out late for the reception and so she began just to sample a few things here and there as they were getting ready inside and, and there was champagne there and so she had, you know, to calm her nerves, one too many of those and she began just eating and eating and by the time she's walking down the aisle, she's, you know, walking sideways. She gets down to the front. True story, I kid you not. You can read about it in Robert Fulgham's book, It Was on Fire When I Lay Down on It. She gets up to the front. And the preacher, who was Robert Fulgham at the time, said, Who gives this young lady to be married to this young man? And before anybody could say anything, she hosed the groom. Just and every I mean it was just this big, awful mess. <laughs> you don't want to be that bride. You want to be the bride who is ready, who is who is dressed in robes of righteousness. The righteous acts of the saints, who is ready to go when the Lord calls. We want to be the bride who is not sleepy or drunk. <laughs> Or caught up in the world? I read this passage often, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul makes it very clear. He says in verse 6, Let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation, what Jackie talked about. That is your helmet. Wear it well. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, and he's not talking about sleepy, he's talking about people who have already passed on, he says we will live together with Him. Therefore, and listen to each other, listen to this, this is for you to do. 
as a church fellowship. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Encourage each other with what? With the coming of Jesus Christ. Oh bride, get ready. Be alert. Be prepared. The wedding is imminent. It's about to happen. Be ready to go. We're not about being drunk in the world. And by the way, side note, drunkenness is an absolutely stupid thing for any follower of Jesus Christ. It's just dumb. And I'm just mentioning that because when I think about drunkenness, we're in a place now in the church where people kind of wink at it. Oh, it's not like, you know, adultery. It's not like some of those bad sins. I just, I just have one too many and I stumbled out to the car and almost killed somebody. It's not a big deal, you know? Gang, if you are in Christ Jesus, Paul said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not with wine. Don't fill up on stuff that's going to make you tipsy and, and, and unalert. I mean, I, I think about this. What if you were out at a restaurant with some friends and you had one and it was good, so you had a second and it was even better, and you had a third and you can't even tell if it's good or not because you're having such a good time and Jesus shows up. And I don't say that to frighten anybody. Do you want to be raptured going, wow! It's just, I, I, it's just absolutely, it's foolishness to me. It's just dumb. Some might say, chill out, Pastor. You know, there are millions upon millions of people today who are in serious danger of missing the whole thing. People sitting in churches who think they have a lamp and think they've got oil, but they're so filled with wine or the cares of this world that there's no room for the Holy Spirit of the living God. 15% of the population of America today declares no faith whatsoever. 15%. And that does not include people with non-Christian religious faith, such as Mormons, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and new movements like the Church of Wicca. The 15% gang doesn't even include that. These are just people who say, I don't have faith in anything. I looked this up, I I couldn't believe There are 39 symbols approved by the U.S. military for headstones. 39 different symbols you can have on a headstone in Arlington National Cemetery or anywhere that someone of military um, connection is buried. 39 symbols. You know what are included in there? The symbol of the atom for atheists. You can have that on your headstone. Or the symbol of the humanist, it's the humanist emblem of the spirit. The spirit of man. And have you ever seen that drawing? But it's, it's this. Or you can now have the pentacle, which is the five-pointed star with the circle around it that is the symbol of the church of Wicca, the witches. You can put that on a headstone if you want. This is the America in which we're living today. Some people are starting to say, man, we need foreign missionaries from Africa and Asia to come here and save us. <laughs> and they laugh about it. And you know what? It's happening. You realize that in the world today, it's estimated there are now more missionaries coming out of what's called the majority world than there is coming out of the West. There has been a dramatic shift, a turning of the tide of missions. As a country, South Korea, little South Korea, which is one-sixth the population of the United States, is now second only to America in sending out missionaries. And they are fast going to surpass us as a missionary-sending country. We don't do it anymore. Oh, we do to a degree. I mean, there's that, there's that side group in the church, or the missionaries. They come and they talk to us and they show slides and wear the weird little shirts. I get that, okay. That's fine. I'm glad we do that. I'm glad we have a missions board and we support them. And we are failing while the West is cooling down, the East is ramping up, South Korea has evangelists in over 150 countries worldwide. Amazing. They're getting after it. That's a country, that is a group of people, that is a place where the church is ready for the bride, or for the groom. The bride is ready. So let me leave you with this question. Are we no longer up to the task? Are we not filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit? I mean, are we not so full less that we don't have to go looking when the, when the groom calls? We have enough. We're filled to the brim. Our lamps are lit. We are holding out the lamp of the Word of Life. 
Is that not who we are? Can we not hold this up for the world? Gang, we have a job to do in these waning days of the end times. We have a job to do. Let's get to it. Matthew 24, verse 25. Jesus said, Behold, I've told you in advance. Now, all of this to say, this church, as long as I'm around, this church is going to be doing that. This church will be about spreading the gospel message whatever it takes. Nothing's going to stand in the way of what we're doing. And if you're not up for that, there are a lot of churches that are sleeping in the light. Go find a comfy pew. Because frankly, if we're not up to the task, you're just going to slow the rest of us down. Please hear me say that with love. But I believe we have a job to do. Let's pray about it. Jesus, we need Your power, the power of Your Holy Spirit, to be more alive in us now than ever before. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that we will be so filled with Your Spirit that the cares of this world and the things of this world, even the pleasures of this world, Father, just would not satisfy like Your Spirit does. I pray that we would be so full that we would have lamps trimmed and burning bright, filled with Your joy, speaking the name of Jesus wherever we go, willing to do whatever it takes. Not worried, Father. I prayed about finances before. I know it makes people uncomfortable. But Lord, no longer worried about how we're spending our money on our things, but we'll start funneling it to You and to the work of Your church. Lord, would You bend our hearts to Your will like never before and fill the Bridge Christian Fellowship with a holy fire that keeps us alert and ready and on the move and doing what You've called us to do. May we not slack or fall behind or get drowsy and sleepy. Father, I I pray a special prayer for those in the future who will read these things and realize the position they're in. I pray for the 144,000, which shouldn't be an odd thing for us to pray. Lord, I pray for the 144,000 that they will be equipped and ignited and ready to go when You call them. But today You've called us. May we answer, Lord Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen.